so um, I'll be singing and I'll be talking and um, we'll see what happens. I, the theme today in my words is um, the warmth of equanimity. You know that in the Brahma Viharas, the Metta Karuna, Mudita Upeka, loving kindness, compassion, joy, especially the joy and others' joy, and balance. In the Brahma Viharas, each one has what's called a near enemy and a far enemy because they, in their pure form, have a certain purity and clarity, but they can get a little distorted by a little bit of distortion. And for example, the distortion, the near enemy of compassion is what we might call pity. It's that more distance looking down, oh, poor you, but that would never happen to me, is kind of the inward, like, oh, thank God that's not me, and I would never let myself get in that position. So that's the near enemy of compassion. The far enemy is hard-heartedness and uncaring. Right? So the near enemy of equanimity is a kind of indifference, a kind of cool detachment that is not truly equanimous, not truly engaged and present and heartful, but more a protection. I think it's what some of we humans do when it's just too painful or we don't know what to do. We're confused. We're, we've never had to deal with this before. Our parents didn't know how to deal with this, and now we don't know how to deal with it. And one way to hide or to pull back is to appear calm. And, well, dear, we'll just have to think about this or that. You know, but you, can, there's, you know what I mean. There's a kind of a distancing in it and a detachment. And I know as a child, if I felt that from my parents, I felt very alone. And I felt like unloved. I didn't feel the love. So I think that the beautiful and delicate and tricky practice is to bring the warmth and the love into the equanimity so it's not just coolness. And um, so the little phrase that Gil gave us um, when we were preparing for this um, theme for this kind of warmth, he called it grandmotherly love. And I really love that because when you think about the ideal grandmother or grandfather, maybe not the one you you have, (laughs) but maybe you do. But there is something that happens even to parents who were less than wonderful or a lot less than wonderful, who often as grandparents really make amends and really make up for it. I know my dad did. He was a wonderful man, but not the most wonderful father. (laughs) But as a grandfather, he was extraordinary. And I could just see him being the man he'd always wanted to be and didn't have space for it. He was earning a living. He was coming into his own identity. He was separating from his parents, things I didn't know as a child. I didn't know all that was going on. So that grandparently warmth and love that is so embracing, so deeply loving, but not with that clinging, fearful, am I doing it right energy that we parents inevitably have. You know, we're, we're so close to these children by blood and by heart. And, you know, we, we um, almost have to get over-attached in order to help them survive. There's a, there's a mystery in how we need to attach to be good parents, and yet that very attaching has all kinds of near enemies, right? Of smothering, of over-identifying, of getting into the drama and losing it to the point where we hate the kid at school just as much as our kid does, you know? <laughs> and hate their parents, too. <laughs> and your little dog, too. <laughs> So the grandmotherly, grandfatherly perspective is not it has is without so much attachment, you know, and uh, and I think that's why children often adore their grandparents, you know, 
Partly it's because they overindulge them, right? Because they don't have to pay the consequences for a sugar binge. They get to send them home with all that sugar in their bodies and let the parents deal with it. So there is that part. And the gifts and the spending money on them. And there's those pieces. But there's also, I know, that felt feeling of safety, of just, they're not hovering over me to make sure I did my homework. They're not hovering over me saying, you're going to wear that shirt with that skirt? I don't think so. You know, they're, they're just, they've got a little more perspective. So there's a song that I love to, um, to sing, and I think a lot of you know it. I didn't actually put it on your song sheets by mistake, but um, <clears throat> I thought we could sing it together. It's How Could Anyone Ever Tell You? How many of you know this? You were anything less than beautiful. We'll do it a couple of times. It's very short. And Sam, would you run over to my guitar case and let's see, where is it? That my capo is in there somewhere. It's maybe in a little um, zipper pocket. Maybe, do you see it there? It might be in there. Yeah, yeah bring it in. There you go. Could be. <laughs> you never know in the heat of the moment where I'm going to put something. Just take a moment to to find this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So it's not in here, in this little pocket. No. Oh, there it is. Okay, great. All right. Thank you. So the words are, how could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you you were less than whole? How could anyone fail to notice that your loving is a miracle? How deeply you're connected to my soul. How could anyone ever tell you You were anything less than beautiful How could anyone ever tell you You were less than whole How could anyone fail to notice That your loving is a how deeply you're connected to my soul. Let's just try it together. How could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you less than whole? You were less than whole. Fail to notice. Could anyone fail to notice that your loving is a miracle? How deeply you're connected to my soul. And one last time. How could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you you were less than whole? How could anyone fail to notice that your loving is a miracle? How deeply you're connected to my soul. So I used to sing this to my son at bedtime and um, always wished, you know, that I had been sung that song as a child. It's written by Libby Roderick from Alaska. And um, 
to me, it's the gift that parents, not just grandparents, because we can channel that grandparent love if we practice our own inner balance. And I'll get to more about that in a minute. But this is an offering to our children. When our child is feeling insulted, demeaned by peers, by teachers, where if our child is growing up, quote, different behaviorally, maybe if they're getting a little older, their sexual identity or their gender identity is coming into some question or into some play, the way they like to dress, the way they talk, their accent, their language. You know, there's a million ways children can be othered, differented from each other. And um, and I should just say parenthetically that we use lots of Kleenex in this Dharma talk, and, and it's a good thing. I'm sure you're all ripe for a good cry, so <laughs> get out those boxes of Kleenex. So that song is a place, is sort of an example of our practice of restoring a kind of perspective. First by just our love, like at the base of it all, no matter what happens, honey, I love you. You know, and I've, you know, my mom would say that to me and I'd say, yeah, but, yeah, but, but it doesn't matter. No matter how many times they say, yeah, but, it's like, yeah, but so-and-so doesn't, and so my teacher this, and what, it's still, I love you. And we know, I know, deep in my heart, that that matters more than they can even tell us or show us. So there's that level of just bottom line. But there's also the level of perspective. How could anyone not see what a beautiful soul you are, what a beautiful person you are? How could anyone fail to notice how special you are? It kind of puts it in perspective, like, who's got the problem? They've got the problem. How could anybody be so silly as to think that? There's a little, almost a little humor. That it's very tender, but there's a little humor, too, like, come on, you know? It's obvious. So. That's a gift of perspective, which is part of equanimity. So I want to try to do two, two little themes in, in this, this moment together. And I, I always run out of time, so I'm sure I will. I wanted to give you a little report back from the view of an older parent, because my son grew up in this program, not, not consistently and not all that happily. It was not one of those success stories where I had a little Dharma Buddha, you know. But I dragged him here year after year, and we did our best. So I've lived through the seven-year-old phase. I've lived through the 11-year-old phase. I've lived through the 13, 14-year-old phase. And now I'm living through the 22-year-old phase. And I've lived through the college. So I thought I'd give you a little kind of bird's eye view, looking back, of kind of where, where he and I went at little moments, and then where he's gone since he left here. Just, just to give you an idea, because I think perhaps many of you don't have children a whole lot older than 17, 18, am I right? Does anybody have an adult child older than 18? Yeah. Okay, you do. Yeah. So most of you are still kind of living through these emerging years. So anyways, I'll give you a little bit, little report on that. And then I want to talk more deeply about the compassion element of equanimity and how it, it relates to resilience in our children and how we can cultivate some ways I've thought of and have practiced around cultivating resilience. So here we go. Um, so when Matt was little, little, six, seven, whatever, 
it was really hard for him because I was a teacher, not just a, a parent, I was a teacher, so I wasn't always available to him. And there was this one day that just is burned in my memory where I was in here in front doing whatever, and it was he was supposed to be with his group, and I heard this weeping out in the courtyard, this crying and crying. And I thought, I hope that isn't my son. <laughs> and as I listened, I thought, that is my son. <laughs> And I was pretty new to being in the teacher role, and I was kind of frozen, like, I have to do this right. I was really scared, you know, and like, I'm, I am way out of my element here. Um, this was many years ago. And um, so I didn't feel free to get up and leave, you know. I just had to sit here and pray that he was all right. And I went out at the end of the, whatever I was doing, and he was sitting there with a counselor, and she had his ar her arm around him, and he was crying and whatnot. And, um, and we, we, you know, got together, and we talked about it, and I guess I talked to the counselor about it, and she said, he cried, and she said all kinds of things like, your mom will be out soon, and we all love you, and we want you to be with us, and everything, every good thing a counselor would say. And nothing helped. Nothing helped. And he finally turned to her in that seven-year-old wisdom, and he said, it's no use trying to make me feel better. I just want my mom. <laughs> That's a lot of wisdom there, you know. And I think, you know, maybe the takeaway is, that we don't have to fix it. We really can't fix it sometimes. But the fact that a live human being had her arm around him while he went through what he had to go through was perfect. It was perfect. And he just needed to feel what he felt. So I thought that was a really beautiful lesson to, to me, you know, that I only got much later about it's OK for them to have a deep emotional moment. And it's a great gift to give them some room to go through it. And for us not to get freaked out, and that's our equanimity, is to not, as I said earlier, maybe, no, I didn't say it to you, I said it to the counselors, to not get on the roller coaster with them, you know, because life is a roller coaster. And when they're, we're young and, and raw, most kids have extremes, you know, because they're not polished yet. They're not, they haven't enough experience to know how to ride the waves. But they do have a deep instinctive knowing we all are born with that crying it, crying it out is all we know how to do. And it's absolutely the right thing. And so adults sometimes get caught trying to stop that process because it's too hard for us. And we confuse the act of crying with the hurt, like, the crying means the hurting is happening, and we have to stop the hurting, so we got to stop the crying. And probably many of you have, have learned that that's not maybe the, the wisest, but in case you haven't been given that little glimmer of, of thought, let me tell you that the crying is the healing of the hurt. The hurt has already happened, and the crying is the healing. It's a very instinctive thing. It's what babies are born knowing how to do. So we don't have to stop it. We can just be there and hold it and give them that, that container. So that was the seven-year-old story. At around 11, I told some of you, I think, the story of when I forgot to do the tea ceremony. Did I tell you this? Oh, my god. <laughs> So he was around 11. He was really restless. He couldn't stand about by about Friday. He had to bust out. He said, I can't take it, Mom. i got to get out of here. I thought about my schedule. I thought, I'm busy all morning, but this afternoon, I'm free. Let's go to a movie. So we snuck out. A teacher left the retreat with her child to go to a movie. Oh, my God. And we went to this horrible movie. We went to Catwoman. It was awful. you know. And we're driving back, and we're feeling good, and we're thinking, maybe we'll get some ice cream on the way back. And all of a sudden, I thought, oh, my God. I'm supposed to be leading a tea ceremony. <laughs> 
And I was still new enough to this. I can't tell you how nervous I was about doing a good job that I freaked, pulled the car over, burst into tears, cried hysterically. I just felt like my world had ended. I was totally over the top drama, no equanimity at all. So my precious 11-year-old son, who was raised by a rather wise mother when she wasn't freaking out, you know, reached over and took my hand and put his arm around me and said, it's okay, mom, it's okay. Nobody's mad at you. It's going to be all right. He said all the right things, especially the nobody's going to be mad at you part. Because you know, that was what I figured was everybody was going to just write me off as a forget her. So I came back, cried some more, met other teachers, cried. you know, And I found out that another parent had taken over and who had done it before and did you know, good enough job. You know, and it happened. It didn't happen the way I would have done it, but it happened. So, you know, the equanimity, first of all, of him kind of knowing that it's not as big as I thought it was. He could see I was having a really big feeling, and he wasn't. You know, he was like, eh, tea ceremony, you know, big deal. So, you know, <laughs> so he could just give me that little balance, you know. So then, um, 14-year-old, 13-year-old, that was the spin the bottle summer. <laughs> so there's like this rule where you don't go into rooms alone, you know, and there's and they also take, a, the teens take uh, the precepts a little more deeply, and they talk about behavior with their bodies and sexual abstinence and so forth. They talk about it a little bit more. So he and some of the 14-year-olds snuck somewhere off and played spin the bottle. Whoa, really racy. So I think he had his first kiss at Spirit Rock, to tell you the truth. So, um, so he and I, it was the opportunity. We had this great talk about the ethics of whether to tell Heather or not. She was the, the queen bee teacher, amazing teacher. And, um, you know, if he told her, would he have to leave the retreat? And so, but if he didn't tell her, then he'd be telling a lie, then it would be dishonest. And it was such a moral dilemma for him. And I got to practice not telling him what to do and sort of helping him speak to both sides of that question. And, and I guess I did intervene enough because I had my standards, you know, to say, you know, if you tell the truth, there will be consequences. We don't really know what they'll be, because I didn't know whether he'd have to go home. I had a hunch he wouldn't. I was pretty sure he wouldn't. But I kind of didn't want to tell him, like, oh, it's okay, sweetie. You won't have to. I didn't want to say there won't be any consequences, because that kind of shortcutted his process. And I kind of wanted him to go through the process of imagining that he might have to leave. And was it worth it to him to be honest and have integrity, even if it meant that? So we kind of had that discussion, and he decided to tell Heather, and I'm sure there was a little urging on my part and a little reassurance that probably it'll be all right. Heather's really loving. She really cares about you, whatever. So, of course, it all worked out, and he didn't have to go home. But it was an opportunity for a really open-ended, beautiful discussion about integrity and consequences. And I guess, again, the equanimity a parent can offer in those teen moments where things do get a little more serious, you know, to kind of offer your balance that um, whatever we can convey that we're not afraid in the big picture, we're not afraid for even getting suspended. And he got suspended twice in high school over really ridiculous things. But um, he didn't do anything that bad, believe me. <laughs> the school was really nuts. But, <laughs> but 
but you know, to, to kind of help, help hold that even bigger picture, that in the bigger scheme, whatever the bigger scheme is that you can embrace, that we can embrace, that this moment is going to be a difficult moment. It is going to have consequences. But very few of his consequences are going to have permanent lasting damage. Now, having said that, I have to say that as teens and young adults, any one of our children could get in a situation where the, the lasting effects could be big, you know. And we know, I think, but I just want to say it, that if one is an inner city youth of color who gets picked up on the wrong street at the wrong time for, for very little or nothing, like the whole stop and frisk thing in New York and other places, that they can be incarcerated and that can have extraordinary life consequences. So it is not at all to kind of say, oh, no, no big deal. You know, there can be really big deals for, for many, many youth. Um, we, pray, we pray that our youth will be fortunate enough to not have to face that. But um, that said, even in a situation of incarceration, juvenile hall, whatever, there's more and more mindfulness stuff going into those settings. There's more and more opportunities for people to turn their lives around. So I guess I'm saying all that just to say that the bigger picture is always bigger. That's what I'm learning. It's always bigger than, than where we all are kind of here. So even if our child has a disaster, it's still not the end of the story. We just, we really don't know what's next. We really don't. Just like the morning teaching about you thought the birthday was ruined, you know, and then you find out there's a surprise party. I mean, we just never know the end of the story. My parents are part of a really neat Protestant um, denomination, the United Church of Christ, and I grew up in that tradition. And the, uh, one of their mottos, and they have this banner hanging outside the churches all around the world, the United Church of Christ churches, that say, God is still speaking. Don't put, a com don't put a period where God has put a comma. And I just feel like those are words to live by. You know, don't put a period where the universe has put a, a comma. Right. So um, I think I'll just sing you a couple of songs out of, my, out of that, this kind of older period in, in my life with my son Matthew, and then um, start out to go into the compassion piece a little more. Oh, let's see. Sorry, I have to organize myself again. Oh, Sam, my faithful helper, could you bring my case over? <laughs> Such a hard time staying organized. Thank you so much. Just put it right there. What would I do without all of you? This is the power of Sangha. This is pretty. Yeah, it's great. You're all my buddy families. So um, Matt has graduated from college and facing that really um, challenging launch into the world of work or whatever, whatever the choice is going to be. And um, so he had these dilemmas, and they were moral dilemmas again, about Part of him, and a lot of him, wants to get into the world and be a mainstream, successful, moneyed uh, power player, you know, kind of, kind of in the middle of everything. He doesn't want to be an outlier like his parents, because we're hippies and, you know, we work around the fringes and we, we do, I go out and demonstrate and hold signs and play my guitar on street corners to change the world. And his dad works with, you know, um, all kinds of multicultural education. And, um, and we're just not like, 
mainstream people, you know. <laughs> so of course he wants to be a mainstream person. But he also has a deep moral center um, and a deep ethical core and a deep compassion and caring for the world. So he's trying to put all that together. So it's like, so mom, do I launch into the business world and, and get one of these, you know, high tech, you know, starting salary 50,000 a year jobs? Or do I go off and do service, you know, and, and you know, kind of get, and get my hands dirty somewhere and back and forth, well, which is me and who am I and which is right? And, Poor guy, you know, that, those are really, really hard choices. So um, I, we, were, we talked a lot about it, and I wish I could find the words to the song I was going to sing you, but, you know, sometimes it's just not together. So I'll just do it from memory and do my best. So this is a song I wrote for him to help him. And I haven't even had a chance to sing it to him yet because he's so busy. And meanwhile, and meanwhile, he figured it all out, and he's like, launch. So, but anyway. Your life spreads out before your feet You're on the cusp of being free No more deadlines, tests and scores Your life, your time is finally yours And I know you're trembling, standing there So many balls up in the air So many choices you could choose you're gaining, you're measuring what you'll gain and lose. But there's wisdom in not knowing. If there's guarantees, you just stop growing. Risk is just another word for facing the unknown. One foot and then the other, that's the way you start. The only compass. You can trust is the whispering of your heart. In the second verse, I, sh I should have told you, there's a song referred to in that says, I never was a Dega dancer. That refers to a song I wrote when I was young called Dega Dancer, about me, about a child seeing a painting of a Dega dancer and dreaming about being that magical person up there on stage enchanting the world. And her father saying to her at the end of the song, it's up to you. Who knows what you're going to be? It's up to you if you will be a Dega dancer. And of all the songs I've written, it's Matt's favorite. It's his favorite song of mine. I'll sing it for you sometime. I don't pretend to have the answers. I never was a Dega dancer. Not every dream you dream comes true just the ones that are meant for you and I I sure remember all that fear I wish I could remember the words <sighs> but music was my oldest friend I finally chose her in the end and there was wisdom in my knowing what had kept me strong and kept me going Risk is just another word for trusting your own heart One foot and then the other, that's the way you start The only compass that you need is the wisdom of your heart
cannot make a wrong move if you listen to your heart. So trust the voice you've always known. It's the wisdom of your heart. Oh, where's the Kleenex? Ah. <laughs> oh. Would you mind running me a little? Thank you. Mm. This is emotional business, this, uh, this parenting thing, isn't it? And a good thing, too. It's a good thing. You know, robots wouldn't be able to do what we do. It'd be nice to have them on hand as backup, but. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I think that, that you know, the, the trust the voice you've always known, the only compass that you need. I think that's parenting wisdom right there. My, you know, I, I read so many books trying to be a good parent. It was ridiculous. And the more I read, they were helpful. They really were. But I was so scared that I didn't know what I was doing that I tried to substitute all this knowledge. And um, people would say things like, well, just trust your instincts. And I felt like, I don't have any instincts. You know, I, don't, I have no idea. I don't have a clue. So it was, so, but it was some combination of heart and and wisdom gained from books and from channeling the best of my parents and sometimes the not so best. And um, anyway, you know, I just feel like God, if we could just lighten up on ourselves, right? And um, trust. And this is what I want to say to you about the older child. Oh yeah, here's the, here's the capper. Is so you know he goes through all the teenage hoop de doo the sex, the drugs, the the hip hop. I mean, way too young, way too often. It was a mess. Um, and then he went to college. He actually got into college. He actually went to college, and he kind of got it together and became this amazing student. Not not. I mean, yeah, he was. He was an amazing student in his own way, and he ended up graduating from UC Berkeley with honors, which is like what and. Um, became a very capable young man. And this is the cool part, is as he began to live more on his own, first in a dorm, then in a fraternity, God help us, and then in his own, uh, God's little joke, right? You know? <laughs> By the way, I have a really cool song called God's Little Joke about, about exactly that, God's Little Joke on Feminist Moms, you know? <laughs> Here's what you get. And it's on a CD of mine that will be out at the end of the retreat. All my CDs will be out. And there's this one CD called Real to Me. And it's got about five songs about parenting teenage kids, so, you know, as well as younger. So it's all there. But, oh, good. Right. Good, good, good. That's right. They, they get, they're in on the joke now, aren't they? <laughs> so, um, so that God. So here's the thing: the more he got some distance, the more he started readopting some of our values. It was hysterical. He started. I mean, high school. You know, we raised him organic. So high school, they had open campus at Berkeley High. They could go out for lunch. He was eating crap. You would, oh, it was disgusting. He was just eating everything we told him not to eat. It was fantastic. And then he got his own apartment, and he started doing stir fries and tofu. <laughs> And when his friends had colds, he would say, you really should eat less dairy. You know, <laughs> do you want some of my vitamin C? <laughs> you know? 
And when he first moved into his own apartment, after about two days, we were checking. He said, Mom, this place was a pigsty. I spent four hours cleaning this place. His, his father's a compulsive cleaner. It's just all this stuff, you know, started coming in. And, you know, a friend of, a good friend of his started meditating, and he got started meditating a little bit. And they came out to Spirit Rock for a day long. This is a kid who could not wait to get off this land, you know, at the end of a family retreat. So it's kind of obvious, but it's worth saying that seeds you are planting may not be appreciated right now, but some seeds just really take some time. And they take some distance, let's face it. They have to get away from us in order to fully, you know, adopt anything we, the parents, laid on them, right? It just makes sense. Didn't, didn't you have to do that? I did, you know. Um, you know, I left the church. My dad was a minister. I couldn't get far enough away from the church. Being, I was a pagan, a Native American practitioner. You know, I just did everything. And now, you know, I really love the church. You know, it's part of my world. It's not my world, but it's part of my world, and I'm very comfortable there. So, you know, it's kind of, it's the cycle. So not, don't sweat it, right, you know? So, so in, our, in our final few minutes, I just want to just say a couple things about resilience. Um, we all want our children to feel safe, obviously. And sometimes we confuse that with wanting them, wanting them to be safe. And the sad truth is no matter how we try with our, oh, whatever resource we can bring to our kids, sometimes it's putting them in private schools, we think that'll keep them safe. Living in communities where the crime rate is lower, we hope that will keep them safe. Shielding them from technology so they don't see too much violence. Nothing wrong with any of these things, but remember the story of the Buddha, this, of young Siddhartha, how his parents tried to keep him in a pleasure palace so that he wouldn't see the suffering of the world and wouldn't get distracted from the path they wanted for him. They wanted him to be a king, a ruler, a kind of a happening, you know, can-do, middle-of-the-road, mainstream guy, like my son is sort of wondering if that's what he wants to be. And Siddhartha couldn't take it. He had to get out. And he stole out in the middle of the night, and he looked, he saw the world, and he saw the suffering, and he said, oh my God, I can't be happy anymore knowing what I know. And, you know, he had to get out there and figure, figure out how to have the kind of happiness that was not just fair-weather happiness, but was happiness meaning a deep peace in the midst of the truths of life, the inevitability of suffering, the inevitability that everything we love and hold on to will sooner or later disappear. I mean, that's, that's a tough reality. And if we can have some peace in the midst of that, we're, we, we've got equanimity. So just like Buddhist parents, you know, we cannot protect them ultimately. doesn't mean we can't shield their beautiful senses and beautiful hearts the best we can. But in terms of helping with resilience as they move out into the world more, there are three things that I wanted to just mention. One of them Gil talked about yesterday in his talk about how our own nervous systems um, create a vibe, create a field in our home for our children. So if we are worrisome, worrying people, if we are anxious, if we are people who tend toward the negative, like the character in the play that was always seeing the, the horse, why don't I have a horse? You know, if we're always seeing the, the half-empty glass, that does permeate, you know. Now, these are, these are mental conditions we probably came in with. They can be family karma from generations back. If we're the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors or other, you know, nationalities that have been oppressed and brutalized, you know, with that, that comes through. That comes through. So no, no blame for who you are. I'm, I'm an anxious type. I'm a worrier. Don't know where I got my, I know, alcoholism. 
in generations back. You know, that really plays out. So we come in with what we come in with, but this is where practice is such a gift because we really can slowly undo that conditioning. And so the first tool for resilience for our children is our own practice, really taking it to heart that it matters that we sit or somehow find some, some balance on a weekly basis, a daily basis if we possibly can, but some time to practice, some time on retreat, figure it out with your partner or your friends so you can get here, get somewhere. Um, listen to Dharma Talks on Dharma Seed, beautiful resource, dharmaseed.org. Thousands of amazing Dharma talks you can download, put in your iPod, iPhone, listen to it on the commute, whatever. You know, bring in those resources. They are a huge gift for your children. It will change the energy field that you bring into their world. So we can begin to ease the generational trauma, you know, by just easing our own system. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is to look deeply at our own beliefs. Look deeply at what do we really believe about the world. When our child runs home with so-and-so is so mean, so-and-so is always mean, she's a bad person, he's a big bully. You know, that, I have to say, that really triggers me, you know, because somewhere in my childhood I felt like there was good people and bad people, and I had to figure out who was what, right? And if that's a belief system I have, I'm going to buy into a view about children and about good people, bad people, and feed a distortion in my child, you know, a distortion about why people are mean, you know. So that's a kind of simple example. But I really encourage you to think a bit about what your big beliefs are about the nature of the universe. What do you believe about where this is all going and the biggest biggest picture? You know, is entropy the law of the universe? It's one of the laws, but are there other laws? Entropy is that everything is slowly falling apart. <laughs> That's my sort of bird's eye, kind of physics for dummies explanation of entropy. Um, or, or what? What do we believe? You know, do we believe that there is a benign force somewhere embedded in all this that tends toward the good? Martin Luther King said the arc of history is very long, but it bends toward justice. There's a predisposition toward justice. What if we believe that? We're in the midst of horrible, frightening climate disruption. What do we believe about the capacity of living organisms, us and everything, to do a course correction? What do we believe about the possibility of mysterious forces working behind the scenes, just like my sister was planning a surprise party behind the scenes? You know, what if the universe is planning a surprise party for us? You know, I mean, these are just, I'm just throwing these out because we can choose what we believe. We don't know what's going on, you know. I have a song called All the Time in the World that's on my woman's song CD. And I'm not plugging, I don't mean to plug my CDs, but I just, I know that sometimes it's helpful to have this music in your lives. So I have this song called All the Time in the World, and it's based on the work of Joanna Macy, who's a fantastic Buddhist systems theorist, workshop trainer. And if you haven't run into Joanna Macy, Google her and and look at her work. And she um, talks about us living in a time she calls the great turning. When we're on our way out of the industrial age, out of the technological age, into something new that is being formed and we don't know what it is. But it's some way that humans and living beings are going to live on this planet or not, you know, in a new way. 
and we're in the middle of it, and we don't know what's happening. So the song says, um, we may be going to hell in a handbasket or right on the edge of something fantastic. And since we don't know what time it is, we have all the time in the world. Which means, not it doesn't mean, let's not get out there and do what we can. Let's change what we can. It just kind of means, let's not freak out. Let's not be the chicken running around saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Because we don't know if the sky is falling, right? We really don't know. So um, again, again, explore your beliefs. Make some choices. Notice the, the default setting that you have in your beliefs. By default, you are buying into a belief that is just a belief. It's just a belief, right? And it doesn't, it's not the truth, necessarily. The last tool has to do a little bit with our compassion altar, which is compassionate response to the suffering of the world. Meaning, when children and all of us hear about horrible, devastating events, you know, the way that, that um, children in, in, and families in Gaza are bombed on a daily basis in a country that they can't get out of, the way children and, and adults in Israel live in fear of rockets coming over the border. This is almost unthinkable. It's beyond, it's beyond you know, whatever. You can hardly grasp it. So how, how to deal with that? Well, the cool, the near enemy indifference would be to just block it out, turn on another channel, you know, just whatever, work harder, you know, watch more video, God, who knows, whatever, distract, have a drink, have a smoke. But we can actually do better if we turn toward the thing that is so hard for our hearts and craft a response as a family, as an individual, as a family, in a couple of different ways. One of them is ritual, is very, very healing. So having lighting a candle, for people you're, you're caring about, you're concerned about. Um, having a little family altar where you put pictures of things that, that you're want to, you know, just concerned about, you want to help. And that's what we're doing out there, is creating a place where art and language and, and image and sacred presence of Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion, can create a holding, a place to hold what is too big for any one heart to hold. So, um, so cre- creative ritual and creativity, drawing, you know, after 911, school children, a lot of school children who escaped, who ran from their school to get away, um, turned out to have a lot of resilience to really come back very healthy. So somebody studied it, and one of the things they did was they did a lot of drawing, a lot of play acting, a lot of reenacting, and that's a child's way of processing really difficult things. So if grandma's really sick and in the hospital and may not get better, you can draw a picture, you know, and send it to her. You know, these, these kind of obvious, but really, for the things going on in our world, creativity is hugely healing. And then the last thing is real engaged action. And I have a, I have a couple of handouts for you, and I'm going to put them on the table out and back in the foyer. And one of them is um, helping our children bring compassion and equanimity to the world and just a little bit of text that I wrote, and then a list of possible things you can do. For example, creating a family altar, I already mentioned, donate to relief groups, write letters or call legislators, attend vigils with other local groups that are responding to a crisis, send loving kindness, having a family prayer time, whatever you want to call it, where we send good wishes. I was in a classroom where a first graders, where one of their classmates had just been hospitalized with leukemia, 
and quite seriously ill, and it was really upsetting for all of them. And we just sent loving kindness to the child, and we sang the song, May You Be Happy, May You Be Peaceful. And the class sent the child loving kindness every day. This is not wasted effort. This is powerful. So something along those lines. And there's more. There's many, many things here. When my son was about 11 or 12, he was in middle school. He was in sixth grade. He read a National Geographic article about child slavery. And it just killed him. He just couldn't believe it. He said, Mom, we've got to do something. I love those words. I just love, I would frame them, Mom, we've got to do something. And our answer is yes, <laughs> right? It's not, well, what can we do? And I know none of you would say that, but you know, we, so, what he, so we brainstormed what he could do, and he made a little collection can and put it down at the local bakery with a sign, you know, donate to free the slaves. We found an organization on the web called Free the Slaves and donated money to them. And you know, it's just a little thing, but it made such a difference. And I think the resilience there is, I think the human heart can stand almost anything if we feel that there is an action we can take to respond. It's this motion of let it in, come back with something, give something back. There's a tremendous healing in that. So if we want our children to be resilient, I really encourage you to take to heart the power of compassionate action with them, creative, ritual, genu you know, engagement out in the action level. Um, not just to be do-gooders, but because it really will create in them that resilience of like, I can handle this world. There is a way to response. I don't have to go numb and, and distance or fall apart. Right. So anyway, that's our time. Um, a lot of talking this time, not as much singing, I apologize, but it is what it is. And maybe at the campfire. We'll have, we have an adult campfire after the kids all go away. So that's a really nice time to just sing our favorite old Bob Dylan songs and, and hang out. So maybe we'll do some more singing then. But thank you so much for you and your beauty and your children. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.